0: Welcome. I'm Connor Beaton, and this is the Man Talk Show training for men and answers for women. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Dr. Alexandra Solomon. She is the author of books like Taking Sexy Back, How to Open Your Sexuality and Create the Relationship You Want, and Loving Bravely, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want. She is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern University, a lecturer in the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University, and a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern as well. Uh, She maintains a psychotherapy practice for individual adults and couples, teaches and trains marriage and family therapy graduate students, and teaches the internationally renowned undergraduate course, Building, Loving, and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. So she's done uh, some incredible, incredible work. She's been featured uh, on platforms like the Today Show, O Magazine, The Atlantic, Vogue, and Scientific America, And today, her and I, uh, she and I are going to take a deep dive into sex and intimacy. And specifically, we are going to talk about feminine desire. We're going to talk about uh, women's sexuality. And really what I wanted to do in this podcast was help to peel back some of the layers of women's desire and understanding what allows women uh, to enter into the space of arousal and uh, what partners need to know, how we can broach, you know, sometimes sensitive conversations, uh, and and how to create a deeper sense of intimacy and desire with your partner. So this is going to be a, a really great conversation. Um, some of this stuff is from Alexandra's newest and latest book called Taking Sexy Back, which is mostly about. A woman's uh, desire and a woman's arousal and a woman's sexuality and it's very very insightful for both men and women Uh, so if you're looking to take a little bit of a deeper dive into women's sexuality then this is definitely a good podcast to tune into Uh, i would recommend checking out this podcast on your own but also listening to it with your partner and hopefully that will open up some great conversations so just on a last final note uh, on this. Obviously, we have the Men's Weekend, which I think we only have two spots left. Uh, so if you're interested in that, then you better sign up quick. Uh, Vienna and I also have the Couples Workshop, which is on February 15th. So that is right around the corner. Uh, and I believe I believe it I might be sold that we might have one spot left. So if you're interested, go to her website, newyorkcouplescounseling.com uh, and sign up there. Or you can email me info at and we will get you a spot. Uh, and then Vienna and I have some great retreats coming up uh, later on this year. One is going to be a women's only weekend. Uh, so if you're interested in that, definitely email us as well. Uh, and we have a retreat uh, in April, which is almost sold out. So if you are interested in doing some in-person work on your relationships, on intimacy with your couple, by your uh, as a couple, by yourself, definitely check out some of the work that we're doing. You can find all of that on connorbeaton.com. Uh, for all the info and details, and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions about any of that. So, uh, without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Alexandra Solomon.
1: Thanks for having me on, Connor. It's good to be with you.
0: Yeah, likewise. I mean, I've been—I haven't seen you in a while, but I've been following along with your work. And Vienna has been raving about what you've been up to. And and here we are, and you've got this—you know—brand new book coming out, which absolutely looks phenomenal. And I think this is going to be a huge value. This conversation is going to be a big value to, to everyone in the audience because we're going to talk about sex and taking back desire and reclaiming these parts of ourselves. And so, so let's just let's just dive in. And you know, since I've had you on the show before, normally I ask, uh, tell us a story about a defining moment in your life. But you've already done that, so maybe just give me some context to what prompted you to write this book.
1: Yeah, this was a book that I didn't know. I didn't even know I really wanted to write this book. It was interesting. You know, the first book I chose, right? Loving Bravely. Like, I chose to write this book. It was, I felt very much like the agency of, like, I'm claiming this topic. I want to write this book. And this book, I feel like, chose me. I know it seems strange to say, but it really got the defining moment in the life of this book is when it became so annoying to stop to like resist the urge to write, it became easier just to sit down, open my laptop and start to play with a table of contents. Like it was a book that really was coming through me powerfully. And I think that's, I think it's, it's the sort of big macro like moment we're living in this cultural moment. where We're talking about sex in new ways, living through the me too movement where we're like naming by naming pain. I think we're creating new possibilities And the book is really personal because I know there are these ways in which I, I would create divisions within myself that as somebody who identifies as nerdy, I can't be pretty, you know, or Mm. if I'm interested in love, I can't be interested in sex. I think, you know, there's a a reality to that in my field, there are couples therapists and there are sex therapists. And Mm. when I was in school training to be a therapist, like my training in human sexuality was, Help the couple argue less and communicate more, and then the sex is gonna just come back to life. And we didn't talk directly about sex, and that sort of reinforced this idea that you know, nice people don't talk about this stuff. And so <laughs> and I see all the ways in which these splits, like if I'm this, then I can't be this, were really limiting me, like limiting beliefs. And so while this book scares the crap out of me. Still, it still scares me that I wrote this, that I'm putting this out there in the world in this way. I, I believe in it. I've seen, I've sat with so many therapy clients, students who are just like shame loaded, you know? I mean, Mm. we know shame as the inevitable result of like capital T sexual trauma. Right. But I think so many of us carry this like normative sexual shame. That's just about what happens when you grow up in a world that is not quite sure how to relate to sexuality.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, sex is usually sort of swept under the rug, you know, in family systems. Um, it's always interesting. Like whenever I do men's work or, you know, we do retreats and whatnot, it's it's always interesting because sex comes up and it's one of the most, you know, one of the most charged topics It's something that people want to learn more about. It's something that people want to talk about. But for a lot of people, it's sort of very taboo, you know, they, they struggle to share their own sexual experiences. But there's so much power in that there's so much um, freedom in that. And so, you know, I think the I think the interesting thing about about this book, and one of the reasons why I really wanted to dive into into this subject matter is that it's really like an uncovering and and Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's really an uncovering and discovering of female and feminine sexuality and like a reclaiming of that. And I think for a lot of men, a lot of the guys that I work with, there are sometimes a lot of question marks around female sexuality. And they're asking questions about their wives, their girlfriends, trying to better understand, you know, what do women want and how does their desire come forward? Because it seems to be different from mine. So I'm I'm looking forward to digging into this topic because I think for the guys that are listening, <laughs> they're going to be like, okay, I'm taking notes. <laughs> break it down. Break yeah, it down. breaking well, it down.
1: I think for every man who cares, you know, there's this this perfect storm, right? Because part of that man box is the idea that you just should know, right? It's like that mm. old thing that men don't ask for directions. <laughs> so when you come to a topic as tender as sex it makes sense that that message, that if you have to ask something is wrong with you, you aren't somehow man enough, that's one factor. But then the other factor, like at the biggest level, we just, we've ignored female sexuality, right? Like when, um, one of the most interesting things I found when I was doing research for the book is that literally medical anatomy textbooks until rather recently, when they would show a diagram of the external female genitalia, they would blur out the clitoris or they would just treat it as if the clitoris is like this little button, you know, Hmm. but when, but then it wasn't until 20 years ago that the first female urologist in Australia, Dr. Helen O'Connell, she was like, I think there's more than just this little button and, and, and image the entire anatomy. And it turns out, it's this fascinating structure, right? Like this four inch deep, deep structure with erectile tissue and nerve endings that has Zero purpose on the entire planet except pleasure, right? That's all it's there for. And so it's like maybe we didn't want to study female sexuality because there's something rather terrifying about this creature that has a part of their body that is just there to feel good. Like you have you got to rethink the whole narrative that women are less sexual or that women are, you know, whatever. If you were if you were really to take the data, like take what you see and f- and go from there, I think we'd end up in a pretty different place.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, it, that's where you start off the book, right? Like you start off the book by talking about redefining what sexy is. And I think talking about from you know this idea of outside into inside out, can you just maybe unpack that a little bit for the listener? Cause I think that's a great place for us to begin.
1: It'd be interesting to hear about how men relate to that word sexy, you know, within themselves. But I think that for a lot of women, this idea of sexy is asked as a question it's sort of like am I sexy do you find me sexy it's something that has to be defined in somebody else's gaze Mm -hmm. how I appear in the eyes of another and what that kind of perpetuates is this idea that female sexuality is performative it is there in the service of somebody else's pleasure Versus being sexual, right? Being sexual is that sense that I tap into my own erotic flow, my own erotic energy, my own sexual self. And from that place, then, how it's an expression rather than a performance, right? Because the first thing I've done is locked into myself and then opened to you. And it's expression, not performance, which is a, a really important distinction. And well, I, I think.
0: Yeah, go ahead. I I was just gonna say, like, I, I think you you kinda hit it on the on the button right there because I don't think a lot of guys would consider themselves quote unquote sexy, right? Like when they think about it, it's like, oh, I might be attractive and I might feel attractive, but my role is not necessarily to be sexy. My role is to you know, be powerful or to, to be performance-based, right? I think that a lot of men are more concerned about how they're going to perform in the sexual act than they are in terms of everything that comes before it. And, and so for a lot of guys, that desire, from what I've noticed, is that it is more about the internal confidence. They might have body image stuff, you know, and be worried about whether or not they're attractive enough from an external from an external point. But I think for a lot of a lot of us men that the that, that sexuality and the allure largely comes from our ability to be confident right, and so I think it does come from that uh from that sort of internal perspective of if you can be really confident as a man internally and you can bring that part forward, then you'll be much more you know quote unquote successful with women
1: yeah um, uh, it's a different kind of performance right here you're talking about performance as getting and maintaining an erection and giving an orgasm which is another like it's just the, the the cyclical nature of this is so gnarly because if he's pressuring himself to Perform in a heterosexual situation. He's pressuring himself to give her an orgasm, but she has no tools for how to access her own internal experience of pleasure, how to follow sensation, how to ask for what she wants, how to even know what does turned on feel like? How do I grow that? How do I have permission to feel that? I just heard a story recently of um, a woman who's now in her thirties, but one of her first sexual experiences was really beautiful. And she was really free in the, in the experience. And then she squirted in her orgasm Mm. and her male partner was really critical. I think he was probably, he may have been overwhelmed. He may have never, you know, thank you, sex education, right. Where he wasn't prepared to understand that or make sense of it, but he was shaming and critical. And that was for her it just locked her down. And so she now her relationship to her own sensation is when she starts to feel the rise of it, she blocks it because she's so afraid of the power of her expression if she were to allow herself to just like lean into it. And that's mm-hmm. so sad, right? It's so sad because now she's in a long-term relationship where she really wants to be able to cultivate something special with her partner. And she's aware that that old story is, um, gets in the way.
0: Yeah, well it's such a good example. So maybe just maybe just for next steps what we can do is what what do you think some of the misconceptions are that that we have about women's sexuality? I'm sure that there's a ton out there that we could dig into and and we could like choose one and just have a whole podcast on it, but I think it might be beneficial because as you know as 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 women's sexuality is more and more liberated and coming to the forefront and it's becoming more prominent in in modern culture. I think a lot of guys are trying to understand the difference um, and the differences that, that women experience in their, in their own sexual arousal. So maybe if we can start there, I think that would be, that would be helpful.
1: Right. Well, we already touched on one which is a misconception would be that women are somehow inherently less sexual than men. And um you know book like Wednesday Martin Dr. Wednesday Martin whose new book it's not new anymore it's about a year old untrue where she really goes into all of the sociology, anthropology, physiology. She really deconstructs that um, that myth. And that's a really important one because it inv- it's a first step towards giving women permission to follow their fantasies, to um, rather than kind of relating, I think it's so easy for the story to creep in that something's wrong with me if I'm interested, if I have fantasies, or if I have this big expanse of sexuality. And there's a world of difference, right, between what I may, where my desire may take me, and then the choices I make with that. But just mm. there's something really permission giving about not being bound to a story that women's sexuality is small, narrow, has to really be evoked. But that sits alongside the, the truth that for heterosexual, well, no, that's not true. For long-term sexually monogamous couples, both male and female partners may really struggle. Like that, that's, There is a, a shift that can happen in a long-term monogamous partnership where there's less spontaneous desire and more responsive desire. Where then the couple's work is to kind of cultivate an atmosphere where they both have access points to their own desire. So I think the first the first round of that research was this idea that actually women's desire works differently, and women do have a bit more responsive desire, where it needs to get invoked or evoked by a great conversation, by some erotic materials, by that it's not just an inherent "I'm horny, I want sex." Yeah, But now the latest research shows that actually male, a lot, lot, lot of male partners also have responsive desire, which is another challenge to that man box, right? This yeah. idea that male sexuality is ready. It's down, it's ready whenever. Well, actually the data is showing that men, especially in steady relationships, have a bit more re- responsive desire than we pre- previously thought.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's sort of situation dependent and individual dependent. Right. I think one of the things that I really appreciate of what you're saying there, and this is, I mean, I've seen this countless times in couples and relationships now where, um, where a woman doesn't feel like her sexual desires has a voice in the relationship. I think that's like the most tangible way that i can describe it is that doesn't there's like not a way they don't feel connected to being able to bring it forward being able to talk about sex being able to you know maybe disclose the type of fantasies or role plays or things that they want to experience um but i think one of the one of the concepts there that you uh that you brought forward was this idea of responsive desire can you unpack that for the listeners a little bit yep
1: so this is um somebody who I really appreciate their writing about, this is Emily Nagoski who wrote a book called Come As You Are, where she's really, she's translating. It's um, a great this,
0: title, by the way. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's it's, great. <laughs>
1: it's a great book. It's a great book. And basically we, you know, when you look at the early, so think about the early um, um, sexual researchers, Masters and Johnson and Kinsey. And that first, the way they defined the normative human response cycle is Um, desire, like feeling that ache in your loins, desire, arousal, orgasm, resolution. And that was viewed as like the normative arc for how, this is how human sexuality works. And then they started talking to a lot of people and they found that particularly women, particularly women in established relationships were like, um, no, it doesn't go like that. I actually have it it doesn't start with desire, it starts with uh, a partner who wants to have sex. And then I enter that space and then my body responds. And um, my my motivation is a bit different. My motivation is for connection, but it's not a physiological need as my entry point into the experience. Mm -hmm. And so that really challenged that initial model. And um, it was in like around 2000 that a researcher named Rosalind Bassan, Created a different model, which shows us that for women, especially, they do sometimes have spontaneous desire, but they often have a desire that is responsive to context. That when we feel connected, my wall comes down, and that's what brings me into the space. So it's really incumbent upon all of us to figure out what is it that activates our gas pedal, right? What is it that, like, kind of helps us remember? I do. I like sex. I want sex. It feels good. Like what, what are the things that are happening within us and around us that activate our gas pedal? And what are the things around us that activate our break? Mm. I know playing Yahtzee with my husband is a real heavy break. (laughs) Like being competitive with him, it really, really like it, it, it just like shuts down my, uh, connection to my own like erotic flow or you know connection with him. It's really interesting. So I know that about myself. And it's maybe something as silly as Yahtzee or as significant as you know stress is a serious stress is a big break presser for all of us. Hmm. So those are the kinds of things that it's really important to learn about our own sexuality because when we're part of a couple, there are really three sexualities, right? There's mine, there's yours, and there's ours. And so it's complicated. Mm. I was just working, I was just having a conversation about a couple where, she, you know, it's very like stereotypic. She really feels like she needs some wooing. Like she she really enjoys a nice dinner, romantic connection, and that opens her. And I think for a very long time, what her husband was hearing is that he had to be good enough to earn access to her, that mm-hmm. it felt like um, it felt like she was kind of putting challenges in the way. When I think really what she was trying to say for so long is this is how I cultivate desire. This is what helps me open to you. So partner with me in that. Mm-hmm. But I think it was there was just a breakdown in the communication. He wasn't hearing that. What he was hearing is like you have to earn. You have to be a good enough boy, you know, to earn this, and mm-hmm. I, that's really painful.
0: Yeah, I think I think that um not a lot but I do think that some men feel that when there is that that difference sometimes in the relationship where it's like oh I have to do x y and z like I remember there was some research that came out a while ago I don't remember who it was that showed that some that most men only need between 1 to 3 touch points in order for arousal to be present mm-hmm. so they might visually see their partner in something attractive and be aroused they might have their partner brush past them and be aroused, you know, et cetera. And for women, it was something like 21 touch points. And so, you know, I think for a lot of guys, they see that and they're immediately discouraged. It's like, oh my God, like there's so many barriers to entry in order to getting my partner into a space where, where, you know, she's aroused. And so what's your, what's your take on that? Like, what would you say to guys that sort of know about that material or have that perspective that, a woman's arousal is, you know, sort of takes quite a bit longer than their own.
1: It's a really subtle shift between seeing it as like, I have to like sort of rack up these 21 touch points. That sounds exhausting. Yeah, That's (laughs) annoying. Versus this idea of like, my role is to really ground my masculinity and create this container, right? Where I'm bearing witness, I'm present, like I'm holding this big space that's inviting her forward. I just actually shared this morning a little IGTV video about last Saturday I was coming home from the gym and I texted my husband and I said would you go, would you go shopping with me today? We have not gone shopping together. You know, we're we're raising kids, we've got these big busy careers. We haven't gone shopping together in a really long time, but I was thinking on the drive About how we, that was such a part of our courtship. You know, I was from Detroit and he was this Chicago guy, and I would come visit him and he would take me up and down Michigan Avenue and, you know, Mm -hmm. just kind of basically like shop, you know, with me. It's all about me, you know? (laughs) And so I have this book coming out and some events coming up, and I wanted to have something new to wear. And I was just really aware that what I love about that is just him literally, like, well, not literally, but him holding space, right? Him just sitting there. In the, you know the Nordstrom dressing room, and me going in the room and coming out in something—it's very like you can. It's you know this is why so many romantic movies have that montage, right? The yeah. pretty woman sort of a thing, and and it really was about me asking him to kind of just hold that space while I do the thing that I know connects me to my aliveness, to my sense of erotic, my sense of of my just how I love to feel beautiful, right? And it's not really even about the outside in him saying you look beautiful. It's about my own journey to figure out how to adorn myself so that I feel beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's subtle, you know, it's not, it wasn't him like checking off another, okay, did I do it now? Did I do all the things I need to do? It really was a different, it was like presence and I needed yeah. that presence, you know, it was so helpful, so supportive, so loving.
0: Yeah, it's such a great, great way of putting it. And I think, you know, it gives context for, for us as men to, you know, understand what it is that's required. I like, you know, I like that concept of just, you know, you're creating a container for that, that arousal, for that sensuality to show up and that it's a process of, you know, for you, it's a process of moving from that external um, I don't know if it's validation is the right word, but the external sort of like oh, I'm being desired to, oh, I feel like I have desire within me and I can yes. bring that forward into my relationship. I I, don't, I can't remember who said it, but I've, I've said it repeatedly, um, you know, in, in retreats and weekends and whatnot, which is uh, foreplay often starts in the morning, you know, like as soon as we get up, it's the, it's these like small things that are happening throughout the day and that might be holding space for a conversation it might be you know validating something that's going on or you know taking care of something um but it's these it's these little things and so i'm curious you know you you mentioned our sort of sexual education a while back in our conversation and i know that for a lot of people um you know sexual education has been limited at best i remember one of my partners in in university, we started talking about sex when we when we were dating, and you know I was joking around about sex ed when I was growing up and the you know putting the condom on the banana and just like the just the crappy you know the crappy form of education that you get it's awkward everyone's laughing, and I remember her telling me I, I never got sex ed I went to a uh, a very religious school and we were we instead of sex ed we had abstinence class. And so she had literally zero sexual education. Her parents had never talked to her. Her family had never talked to her. Her school had never talked to her. The the only thing that she heard repeatedly was don't have sex before marriage. Right. And that was the only form of sexual information that she'd ever got. She'd never watched porn, like nothing like that. So where do you feel like our our... Uh, education system is maybe lapsing on what it's teaching the average person about sex and about desire outside of the, you know, the obvious that it's, it's lacking in some schools entirely.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, it's a huge topic and I spend a lot of time talking about, right. Sort of like a new vision for sex education, but this is a part that when we were working on the book, I had this team of graduate and undergraduate students that was with me as we were researching and writing and editing. And I was caught off guard by how emotional we all were when we were looking through the research around sex education, sharing our own stories of sex education. Like there was a Mm. lot of rage and a lot of sadness that we were all aware that we were moving through, like sort of this like collective grief about what so what we weren't given and what we needed, and in ways in which we end up needing to reparent ourselves or reteach ourselves. And reclaim, you know, what what really should have been ours, because it makes a difference. You know, it's not; it may not be front of mind, but I more and more I'm asking people to, you know, I'll give a talk and I'll say, turn to the person next to you and share a story from your sex education. And it's like stuff <laughs> that people aren't explicitly thinking of, but when it when they call it up, it's emotional content. I was doing one recently. She was a young gal, one of the one of the um, clinicians in the audience. She was definitely in her twenties still. So, and she was a public school. She had gone through the public school system and her, the person doing sex education came in with two gift bags, like with tissue paper. And one was really beautiful. And the other, she had like driven over with her car and crumpled the paper and rubbed dirt on. And she plopped the two bags down on the table in front of a room full of 15 year olds and told them, you have two choices of what you're going to give your spouse someday. This is if, you know, you're either pure or you're dirty. Like was, you know that was what was captured in that image. Like you have one of two choices and, and the right. And it's, it's whether or not you are sexually engaged, you know, in any activities before marriage. And, and if you do that, you are dirty. Like nobody wants you. It's just so toxic. And so that may not be front of mind, but it's like the, that early imprinting. that's just heartbreaking.
0: Well, and I find that that messaging is often directed towards women specifically You know, depending on the culture, depending on the sort of like theology and whatnot, but that messaging of you need to be pure when you enter into a committed relationship or marriage is largely directed towards women. I find that for a lot of guys in our modern culture, you know, there is a there's a little bit of a different lens, right? There's. You know, there's the, the the conqueror there. There's pride in in how many you know people that you've that you slept with for some guys. And I think guys that are often lacking initiation into manhood sometimes use sex as a means of entering, trying to enter into manhood, trying to go on that hero's journey in some way, uh-huh. and and entering into that that space of feeling like they have overcome something, you know, or or become good at something. So it's just a very very interesting challenge that, that, you know, people face. So what, what would you say people start to like, where do people, where do people start, right? If they're wanting to learn more about sex, about their own desire, you know, and they, they seriously lacked, you know, within the education system, where can they start? Cause I think sometimes this conversation could be so overwhelming and, and how do you sort of address that in your book? How do you tackle that, that large subject?
1: Right. Right. Um, I do, let's see. I think that there. I think what's what's beautiful is there are so many great resources out there now between um, podcasts and articles and books. Like there's there are a lot of really wholehearted, thoughtful uh, materials available. But I think sometimes that first barrier is just some shame or embarrassment or self consciousness that I'm buying a book about sex. You know, there's sort Mm -hmm. of that. There can be some blockage even around that. Like, who am I if I'm buying a book about sex, and what does that say about me? And so, the first thing would just be noticing that. Like, if you if you find some a book you're interested in, but there's sort of like that embarrassment about it, just to notice that. Maybe bring in some self compassion, right? So just that re that shifting from sex is something that is dirty, taboo, or I shouldn't, or I shouldn't have questions about it, to really noticing that old story and and working to slowly replace it with actually my erotic self is this really deep, beautiful part of me. And sex is both a behavior and a gateway to really important human longings, human questions. And I'm entitled to refine this part of myself. So there's like Mm -hmm. that kind of like shift in the story that then opens us to making choices about what do we want to listen to? What do we want to bring in? The, The back of the taking sexy the back book, the end of the Taking Sexy Back book, has a whole bunch of resources that I really like. Everything from websites to podcasts to other books.
0: Mm. And just you know, from your research, from the work that you've done with couples, what have you noticed? Are some of the discrepancies? You know, obviously, uh, we're sort of using a heterosexual um, context here—a container. But what have you noticed? Are some of the discrepancies between you know the the man and the woman in terms of his perspective on what creates desire for her or where he's going wrong. Let's just, yeah, let's just dig into that a little bit more.
1: Yeah. I think that the, you know, most of the couples that I see are coming to therapy in the wake of somebody's infidelity. Hmm. That's such a common presenting problem, which I think is reflective of the fact there's still quite a bit of shame and stigma around couples therapy. And so people are not I think oftentimes infidelity is a reflection of our relationship has really just eroded, or my own emotional health has eroded, and so I'm I'm acting out because I'm not turning towards this pain point, this unhealed wound that lives inside of me. So my infidelity reflects my acting out behavior, but oftentimes the way we're talking about sex is through the betrayal, right? And um, and one of the pieces, you know, for for couples who are in therapy, working to rebuild after infidelity, um, you know, as we move through the trauma, the disruption, the hurt, and we are moving towards a place of trust and and we're expanding the lens a bit and looking at sort of the fault lines that made this couple vulnerable to infidelity. We are talking then about, you know, erotic reclamation and um, erotic healing. So it's not just stopping the pain, but also helping the couple move towards a sense of you know, pleasure and connection and sort of taking back that part of the relationship that was that was really hurt.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when couples, as couples do that, then we off, that, that often ends up being the way that we end up talking about their sexual narratives, their sexual histories, their understandings of each other. And, and then what we find is that there are often deep misunderstandings that have existed for a long time. Because we haven't been asking each other the questions, but also because even if even if my partner had asked me the question, I wouldn't have known what to say, because I had no sex education, you know, my story is good girls don't or whatever so it's it's so unfortunate that 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 it takes something often like infidelity or just erotic neglect, right couples who haven't made love in years, yeah. and now they're finally going to talk about it in therapy. We have to start all the way at the beginning, like what, you know, why, what are the stories that you brought into this relationship? Um, but what? there's, yes, the research shows to your original question, your, the research shows that most couples, 60% of couples, oh, I can't think of the numbers off the top of my head, but basically that most couples don't have a great understanding. If you ask them, what does your partner like and not like in bed, they can't tell you very much about them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I could imagine that leading to dysfunction pretty, pretty quickly. Um, what, you know, I think one of the things that might be uh, eye opening is, is maybe just talking a little bit more about some of the shame that, you know, women often bring into relationships around sex specifically. So what are some of those shame stories um, that they're given? Because I think sometimes it's a little bit different than um, from what men experience.
1: We touched on the one about, I think that you're right that oftentimes when, when it's been a religiously based sex education, um, you know, religion and patriarchy are quite entwined, at least sort of traditional religion. So oftentimes those messages are really um, quite shaming around around virtue and worth mm-hmm. and value um, tied up in virginity, right, and purity. So that, that's a piece of it. But then I think one that we we really, it's really important to highlight because it works so differently for women and men is stuff around body image. And just how easy it is for a woman to have a relationship with her body and her appearance that is one of chronic um, improvement that I'm never done. I'm, there's always work to be done. I can always show you all the spots of my body that need to be toned, trimmed. And I know that men, I know that men carry um, a lot of body image stuff as well, but there is something different, I think, about the way in which our culture um, you know, entire industries, right? There are entire, if women decided that they were done with the self-improvement around body, there are entire economies that
0: would just <laughs>
1: collapse. <laughs>
0: yep. If women
1: were like, I'm gorgeous as I am, like this is, you know, how I'm going to be.
0: Yeah, suddenly so, soul cycle is just empty on a Sunday. That's right. <laughs> yeah. right. It certainly
1: So in the book, you know, there's an entire... So in the book, we go through these seven different lenses or seven different realms. And one of the realms is the physical. So we're talking about the role of body image and, right, that there is like to exercise because it feels good rather than to make this change in our body. But I think what the breakdown is, I think that that, um, we take these messages into the bedroom and they end up being the tapes that are playing in our heads as we're making love. And that, that tape that how does my stomach look right now? How do my hips look right now? Is my partner judging me? Those tapes are going to shut down desire. They're going to shut down arousal. They're going to block orgasm because orgasm requires a kind of abandon, you know, that is, that is, I'm present. I'm not trying to control anything. I'm just really present and allowing this to move through me. And so that's, um all those like sort of mental self-critical judgmental stories about body and appearance can really get in the way.
0: Can you just unpack that one a little bit more and maybe give some insight? Because one of the questions that I've heard a lot of guys bring up in um in the work that that we do is like how do I support a partner who's struggling with body image? Because it is quite common and it can you know, often be uh, one of the blocks within within the relationship. And so I think there are a lot of men out there that sort of feel a sense of helplessness of like, what do I do? How do I help her? You know, and I think that oftentimes um, it, you know, not, maybe not all guys, but a lot of guys feel responsible for the quality and quantity of sex that's had within a relationship, whether they verbally say it or not. Um, but you know, when it's, when it's just them, they really do feel responsible for it. So if it's not happening frequently, or it's not the quality that she or he is wanting, um, there's sort of like this weight of responsibility that a lot of guys carry around. Um, but, uh, and, and so I think that when these things do come up around body image, guys are like, well, what do I do? How do I support her? What do I like? They're not really too sure what to say or what to even start. So can you maybe just peel that back of a, what it's like for a woman in that space? Uh, and B, you know, how men can sort of support that, how, how they can support their partners?
1: I think it's a really great question. I don't think it has an easy answer. Mm-hmm. I think one, one answer would be for him to just ask the question, like what, you know, what are the things that I do that feel really supportive of your journey of healing body image, body shame? And what are the things that I do that get in the way? Like what does me being an ally look like for you, which I, so I love that is just an opening because I don't, mm. she may be like, I've never even thought of that. And there may be things that he's saying that he has no, that are more a reflection of his own self-consciousness about his body, but she hears it as he's being critical of her. Like if he says, I'm going to skip dessert tonight, whatever, she really might do a mental gymnastics where she says he's skipping dessert because he thinks I've gained weight and I should skip dessert. You know, mm. that's, that is a that viable <laughs> hypothesis. So, just that question, I think, is really beautiful. How can I show up for you? What do I do or say that's helpful or not helpful? And then to also bear in mind that he can't fix it for her. The tricky thing about shame is he can, he can validate and say, I love every single ounce of your body exactly the way you are. And I'm just so grateful to be invited to the party when we're together that I'm not thinking about anything about the shape or size or anything of your body. I'm just so happy to be in that space with you. So that's probably really helpful to hear, but it can't be It can't be the sum total because when it comes to shame, shame is about my own journey with myself. So Mm. somebody else can't love me out of my shame. I have to do a piece of that work myself Mm. and I can't offload that onto my partner.
0: Damn. I just, yeah, somebody, people can't love us out of our shame. That's Mm -hmm. like, that's beautiful. It's such a well put way that I think we can all use a reminder of. It just in terms of, uh, you know, I think we're, we're going to have to wrap up here soon. Unfortunately, I feel like we could do like a two hour, like really deep dive. Like I have so many more questions. I'm just, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. So I definitely want to have you back on the show to talk about maybe some specifics around, you know, how partners can really start to deepen and cultivate their, their practice of creating this desire and creating this, you know, kind of conversation um, within the relationship that will that will allow sex and intimacy to flourish, but maybe let's just start with what does it look like to to cultivate a, um, an environment within a relationship where our desires can both come forward.
1: Mm, beautiful. I um, I think it, it needs to be a conversation. For sure, because it's going to be different for each couple. And also whatever a couple figures out has to get refigured out. You know, when they have a baby, when somebody's health status changes, when somebody's work, you know, work role has changed. And so what may have been, it may be confusing for couples because it's like, ah, we used to not have this problem. You know, it used to be so easy for us and now it's difficult. And so what happens when something, when sexual connection becomes difficult, I think the first thing we're at risk of doing is importing a story that either something's wrong with me, something's wrong with you or something's wrong with us. We kind Hmm. of go to that place. And the moment we do that, either a finger point or a shame story. We cut off the possibility for collaboration and collaboration is the two of us standing shoulder to shoulder with the, with the question in front of us, like, okay, how do we cultivate erotic? How do we cultivate sexual connection with this new little ass baby who is up at all hours (laughs) of the night? Or, you know, what, what do we do with that? How do we do this? When, when now you're traveling three days a week, like, so It has to be every sexual problem has to be framed as a couple problem because otherwise we end up getting locked into blame and shame. And the moment that blame and shame are in the equation, we know we've lost that really juicy relationally self-aware approach that we just have to take. Mm. So that's really the way the conversation starts. And just, and just, it also has to start with the foundation that we are different and deep humility around that, and and willingness to l- really listen to that difference. Because I think so often in the face of difference, what we want to do is just like, like just say no. As not that's that's weird or that's different or I don't understand that. Um, and so just to really be willing to listen to that. Mm.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's that's really great advice. And I, I'm I'm curious for you. Like one of the things that I've seen happen quite a bit is that as couples relationships go go on and they evolve um, sometimes the the sex and the intimacy doesn't evolve with it um, you know there's there's a bit of stagnant uh, you know stagnancy that can start to set in and routine starts to set in and you know that that seems to lessen for some people the intimacy and, and the impact that it has so can you maybe just give a little bit of insight into how people can continue to evolve their own uh, intimacy with one another and how they can continue to evolve like what what's the individual responsibility on both people's sides? How do we start to explore our own sense of desire and sexuality on, on in, within a relationship
1: right right yeah the the research is clear that um, about a third of of long term couples really and continue to enjoy their sex life as much as they ever. Which maybe feels depressing because it's it's a third is a small, and maybe it's closer to 40%. 40% say that they love it as much as ever before. But the 40% that do, what they said, what they say is what we we really actively cultivate um mood, and we 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 attend to mood and setting. Mm. We do things that consistently create orgasm. So that's a really important one. Not that orgasm has to be the end all be all. But it's but it's it's a clear motivator, right? It's easier to motivate if I know that that what's going to happen is going to feel really, really good, and so that's a, a really important precursor. Is just making sure that what the couple does together creates, you know, creates like orgasms that feel really good and like sort of self reinforcing, and that for heterosexual couples really does require us to deconstruct the heterosexual sexual script, because we have, you know, you think about like in grade school, you learn about the bases, first base, second base, third base, home run. So we have really placed penetration, penetrative sex as the end all be all and as the most sex that you can have. When in fact, it is, it's not the most reliably orgasm producing behavior for a woman to engage in, because when you think about the clitoris in relation to the vaginal, the vaginal opening doesn't have a ton of sensation. All the sensation is with the clitoris. And so maybe penetration really activates and engages the clitoris in a way that feels good, but most likely she's going to need oral sex. She's going to need like a lot of additional touch toys, lube, like really being willing to create the conditions that are supportive of her orgasm so that the whole process becomes self-perpetuating. And that's another, uh, that, that data also shows that couples where they're really enjoying sex, there's lots and lots of oral sex.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Great. So have more oral sex. <laughs> Bottom line. Uh, more cunnilingus and fellatio. That's great. Ser- serving it right up.
1: <laughs> My mom of that, would be so proud. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so final, final question. I know um, I mean, there's there's a ton of women that tune into this show, and I think one of the great things that you address in this book is inviting men into the space. And so, for the women that are listening, what what would you say to them about inviting men into this conversation within the relationship? How how do a woman start to really broach that subject with them?
1: Yes, we were we, my team and I were really planful about that. in fact, the entire there's an entire chapter in the book that is basically my open letter to the men who love the women who are reading this book because I know as a as a systems therapist, I know you make a change in one part of the system, you change the entire system, right So I didn't want these women who are like having these awakenings, shedding shame. You know feeling expansive and their male partners being like, okay, what are we doing?
0: And I think <laughs> yeah. You want me to um, do what now? <laughs> yeah, no.
1: And I think, you know, what it can create is if she's if she's moving rage and sadness through her, I don't want him to take that personally, right? He did not cause this. This problem is so much bigger than any one man. But he can certainly be a massive ally in her journey. So I wrote a special part of the book that is just for him and how he can be a source of support on her journey.
0: Awesome. And so That's I wonderful. think,
1: the, so my hope is that the book, that then it can be hard to start a conversation like, hey, I want to talk about our sex life. And so having a thing like a book is like, I'm reading this book and you can put it off on, you know, I was listening to Connor's podcast and Connor said, we should, you know, look at this book or my therapist says, so it's, you can even put it off a couple of layers of responsibility and just have the book or the podcast or whatever as a touch point that becomes an opener to a conversation that may feel hard to have, but really important to have.
0: Yeah. And even just the preface of, hey, I'm wanting to explore my own desires more is such a powerful uh, gateway, you know, to those types of conversations. So- yeah, I th-
1: yeah, I think that I think that most partners would be like, "Sweet, how do I yeah. show up?" You know, it doesn't yeah. need to be threatening. It doesn't need to, it's not a criticism. It's an invitation for expansion. It's not a critique.
0: Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and um I think I'm, we're definitely going to have to have you back on the show in the next couple of months as you know, your your tour starts and and all, all of this with the book coming out. So, um the book's already live. We're going to have links in the show notes for that. Uh Alexander, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Connor.
0: And for everyone that's out there listening, definitely go check out the link in the bio. Uh, you can you can go and get a copy of Taking Sexy Back Now, and don't forget to leave us a rating and review. Maybe share this episode with with your partner. Share it with a friend. Um, but definitely share this episode because sex is a conversation that needs to be had more often. And I think that what Alexander is doing is incredibly beneficial, incredibly powerful. So so have the conversation, commit to it, share the podcast, maybe listen to this with your partner. Um, that might be a great place to start. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.